The Story in Your Head, Episode 8, Offering Real Help. Welcome to the podcast, The Story in Your Head, where we explore how the stories in your head can influence your actions and the actions of others. This is Michelle Masago. And this is Ron Macklin. Great. So today we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a real offer of help? And I stick on that word real, that sticks out to me. So Ron, is that word important and, and why? Great question to, to get us started into. So to be a real offer of help, although we could make up like what does real mean, like in that space, we hold it comes from the word reality, like it's real or it's in reality. And it's really focusing on each person we're working with, including ourselves, and everybody else, there is a story that they have in their head that is their reality, right? They make it up from all the perturbations that come in from outside, sight, smell, taste, touch, all of that. And when we say we want to make a, a real offer of help, we're making one that fits into their reality. And while we could sit here and say what we think it is, what matters whether somebody will actually accept something from us or not is how they interpret that question, which is, what help do I need? All right, so there's always lots of stories of everybody holds their own reality. I barely know what my own reality is. How do you figure out what somebody else's is so you can figure out that offer of help? First, the space is, there's just certain things that we all need help with, right? We need, we need help with health in our body. We need help with our family. We need help with how to transact in the world, how to pay for our retirement, or should I say permanent unemployment when you can't work anymore. There's all those domains that people have, right? And there's kind of a constellation of all of those. If we actually stop taking care of one of those domains, then that will interrupt our life and our ability to live what we call a good life, our version of a good life, right? So there's the fundamentals there. Now, there's that's what everybody gets to work with but how they actually answer the question of what is a good life, each person has their own interpretation of that. So if you're going to find out what somebody has made up as their story, like what is the, what is the first question to ask them? Yes. What's a good life to them? What's a good life? Right? Here's my noticing. That's not a common question. Mm. Right? We, we talk about the weather. We talk about sports teams. We talk about political items. We talk about everything else but what matters to us, which is like, what's a good life to me? And so to ask that question, it can perturb people to go like, like this, they don't have an answer. Although if you start to toss, ask more questions than that, what we call tossing lines into it, they'll begin to realize they really do have an answer for what is a good life. But they've never organized it in that way before say, what is a good life? Hmm. So just maybe think, have you ever had situations where somebody doesn't want to tell you what their good life is? And what I mean by that, it may be something that they think, well, a good life to me is living in a yurt on the mountaintop or a boat in the middle of the ocean or something that's uncommon. How do you get somebody to really share what's in their heart of what matters and what a good life is? Because it is an uncommon question. And I guess I'm just thinking, like, do people look around and say, well, it's what everybody else wants, right? 
things. I don't know that I've actually noticed that answer. Mm. What I've noticed is the metaphor for trying on shoes. They really start trying on shoes, right? And we've had uh, everything from, you know, I really like I really like to go be a school teacher, right? That's a good life. Or no, I would I'd like to travel all the time, right? And then uh, as they're bringing forth those stories that's inside of them, right? And then you can start to ask questions like, so what would be the skills required to do that? Like how much money would it take to do that? Can you earn money doing that? Then you can see them as they're trying on these shoes, trying on these different offers, different spaces for them. Or should I say they're trying on the reality of it, right? You you can see them begin to go, no, or yes, or maybe, or I need to talk to my spouse about that or my kids or my, my parents or whatever the story is, like they're, they're beginning to be in that space. And so the reality is they're now in the mode of creating it. Because for the first time in their life, they're actually beginning to say, I can create this. And that's a new space for many people. So it sounds like the first offer of help, of real help, is to help people figure out what a good life is if they don't know what that is ahead of time. Yeah. I noticed that you said, you know what a good life is? Yep. Oh, tell me about it. Well, you know, it's a good life. And there's nothing wrong that you haven't looked at it. Like no, nobody set us down in grade school and said, okay, we're going to draw a picture of a tree and a little boy or a little girl. And by the way, you need to start figuring out what is a good life. Right? There's, there's no system set up to be able to help us learn that and figure out what that is. So we drift into it, trying to meet the expectations of teachers and parents and school systems and uh, our cultures and all that stuff. And we never had the space to really go figure it out for ourselves. And what we do when we're doing this with somebody is you're giving them the space to create whatever it is they want and to try it on. And it's fascinating to watch people create what is a good life for them. Hmm. So I can totally relate to that. It took me about three years to get comfortable with what I wanted to be my good life and how I created my good life. Because I got caught up in the norms. And that's why I was asking you that question, right? Of what, oh, I want, you know, they seem happy. That seems good. Or, you know, at first I'm going to save the earth, right? A good life is like the polar bears are going to be better off. And it took a while for it to get simple for me which is just taking care of my family, right? Living in, we live in South Florida, I don't like to be cold. So, so I lived in some place I could be warm, you know, and it got very simple. So, so thank you for that. And it, it was not a, it was a task that took me some time because I really had to think what was right for me. And whatever that is, it doesn't matter what other people think, it's what's right for me. Perfect, Michelle. Actually going through the process of figuring out what is a good life requires an enormous amount of courage. Courage to try something on. Courage to say, I'm not going to fit into whatever the norms are, right? And we're inundated with this whole, like, what TV, uh, like from when I grew up, it was, we had the three major networks of channels and TV shows coming at you. And then you had radio. And then you had newspapers, right, and magazines. And now you have all this other media coming at you where there's all this version of what is a good life coming at you. 
And nobody's ever sat down and said, you know, you get to choose what you want to do. It's up to you. It's really, it's your, your call. Whatever you want to do, you're good. And what I find is a lot of times people will go one of two ways. So what, what kind of life do you need? I, I want to be a millionaire. Oh, well, how, how many millions do you, do you need? And they go, maybe more than one. Maybe I, I think I need more than one. Okay. And then you come back and go, I, I need 25. Okay. What, 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 what are you going to do with 25 million? I don't know. I just figured out that I need 25 million. I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it all. And so as we work with people to dance with what their real concerns are and what they really want to do in life and how they really want to produce them, their space in the world, the $25 million is like a, a great shield, right? Because it can protect you from the reality of, you know, it, it takes about you know, two and a half, three million dollars just to provide life without working. Not a great life or not to say not like lifestyles rich and famous, just a normal life, right? And to be able to, to be in that space and be able to address that takes a certain amount of courage to be able to say that versus being in a space where you're using it as a shield or say, no, I, I'm going to, I'm going to have no money and live off of nothing. And that's what I need. Right. That, that also is a good shield. Right. But versus being responsible for it. Yeah, thanks. And like I said, it was a, a several year journey for me to figure that out and figure out the the number that would work for me. And I remember one time I was just walking and, and talking to some folks and and somebody turned to me and said, you seem to be at such peace. Right? And I thought about it and I'm like, wow. And I looked back and I said, that was by design. Right? It wasn't an accident. Tell me about the design. So that was at three years. And it took me, it took me time to figure out how to design it. I, I started, somebody suggested this. They said, go through a magazine and cut out all the pictures of things that you like. I'm like, okay, this is silly, but I did that. And it started to lead me to what things I liked. I like trees, I like green, I like water, I like warmth. And what is the family like, right? And that helped a little bit because it helped me to think through, where do I want to travel? What does that need to look like? What kind of house do I want to live in? What is that going to look like? Do I want to live near things? So one of the big decisions for us was we always lived in very rural areas where it was a half hour to the grocery store. And I remember a lot of winter storms. It was in the Northeast, right? We'd get a blizzard and, you know, we're out there with chainsaws and yeah, the neighbors got together to, you know, get all the trees off the roads. And I'm like, been there, done that, right? We wanted to be someplace warm. Yes. We wanted to be someplace where the grocery store was nearby. I was a caregiver for my mom who, who passed away in December. I wanted facilities that could help to take care of her and then later for me. What does that look like to live in a community that's very supportive? So I went through all these different pieces and, you know, we chose here in South Florida, you know, in, in a home that lives on a little lagoon and I get to watch the ducks every morning and the sunrise come up in my bedroom and it's beautiful, right? And it got simpler. Doesn't mean I, now I have space to do things like Macklin Connection and others, which is fantastic. But the environment was really important. My daughter's living with us. My husband and I are probably the happiest we've ever been. And so that was part of the crafting of it. But it was a, it was a journey for me. It was at least three years to do that. Of consciously, like actively trying to do that and doing a lot of not that. Got it. How would you describe like your way of being while you were in the middle of that? 
at first it was incredibly disruptive, right? Because I had to dig deep and really figure out what was important to me. I mean, really important. Okay, the polar bears is, a, is an example, but you know, I thought like, okay, I'm on my dying bed and I saved the polar bears, but my family is a, is a total wreck. It's like, eh, no, that probably wouldn't cut it for me. So I had to dig deep and really go through and say, what was important? It's, it's family, right? It's waking up with joy in my heart every day. How does that get produced? The one of the things that helped me too was being a caregiver for my mom. And my dad passed away. My mom moved in with us and you know she has Alzheimer's. And the reason why that's relevant is that as that disease progresses, they remember less and less but then what becomes important is what's left, right? So it almost by default starts to strip some things away and you can see what's left because what's important to her is a foundation and working with her and caring for her helped me to see, you know, it was a wonderful gift that she left me to see what's really important. And part of that was taking care of her, right? And part of that was, okay, it is family. And like I said, it got simpler. So it was quite a journey. You know, I'm not a big car person. I just want them to work, right? So that wasn't, wasn't a big thing. I don't want it to break down. Yes, I do want it to be economical and safe. And probably the next one will be some sort of electric car because I do like the environment, but that's about it. So, right, you go through each one of those aspects. And, and so that was a big piece of it. Thanks. When you're meeting new people and you're tossing lines to them around, like to be, find out what is of real value to them, have there is there something that's shown up for you as like a, a seductive line or an easy line to toss to be with them? One of the lines is what brings you peace, right? Because peace is not a word that's used all that often. And it kind of stops people and they think about it because then it's peace and joy, right? Figure out one of those words. Like when you wake up in the morning, why? Like, what's your purpose? What makes you feel good, right? So it's to get to those feelings that people want to do. Is it your family around you? Is it, like I said, all sorts of things. But I start usually with what brings you peace, peace of mind and joy, and let people start there. How about for yourself, Ron? That was my story and my journey. You've probably been at it even longer than I have. What does it look like for you? The way I would start that conversation is I, I tried on a lot of shoes, right? Some of it was around morals that I had about growing up in a world where it was okay to have enough money, but never to talk about money. And if you had too much, then money became bad. And to be in a space where I could notice that that's a story I had and it was my reality, but then I could choose that reality or not. So that was part of my journey was to figure out how, like how much was enough for me, which really it's always got to start with what do you care about? Right. And it was easy to, to say, well, you know, I really love to, I'm an outdoorsman. I literally love to go hiking for, you know, like six months. Right. And normally after about two weeks, three weeks away, I, I'm ready to go back to being in the world, like, be, like not out playing somewhere, but being in the world with humans to be contributing and to be in that space. And so for me, it was around how do I find the space that I love to be in? And that's what I care about. And then how much does it take to live in that world? Which was more 
then I figured out that I, that I first started out with, because I remember growing up in a world where you know, anybody who had a million dollars was a millionaire and they were super rich, right? To me, they were just way beyond my imagination. But nothing like what I needed to have, you know, DECA, $10 million or something more than that. I could get really get down into the space of this is the lifestyle I want. I want to contribute to others. I, I want to have a place where I can always be able to add value. The, the story of the young woman and the old woman walking down the street. And the young woman asked the old woman, what's life's greatest burden? And the old woman said, to have none to carry. I realized at that moment, if I'm not contributing to somebody, I'm not going to be happy because that's where I find joy in life. That's where I find joy. That's where I find peace. That's who I want to be. And in the process for me to be able to make an offer of help to other people, I need to first build my own skills and my own capacities. And this is a part of what, like what I'm doing with what we're doing right now, right? is to be able to create a space for us to do that. So what is real for me is to take care of my own body with, with really good medical care, not over-the-top medical care, but really good medical care so that I can be with my wife, Connie, right? so that we can grow old and take care of each other and, and be with each other, be in conversations, be in dialogue around what we care about, creating and taking care of things, and create space for my, our three kids to become who they are. And they're perfect, and they're becoming. And how do I be in a space where I could be of help to them? So those are the things that, in that world. And then all the other stuff is it's into that to support it. And I do find myself occasionally where I go, why, why am I doing this? Like there's something I'm doing and I just go like, that doesn't really fit into where I'm going to be. So then I go, how do I close it out so I can get back to what I love to do? And what then from there, if somebody wants to help me and do something, I can now look at what did I care about or what I might be able to get help from them from. Thanks, Ron. A great story. And I so agree with you on being helpful for others. It's one of the reasons why we wanted to move to a community instead of a house that's isolated and everybody having you know, 100 acres around you. Well, yes, if you call somebody and get in your car and drive, you can go see them. But here I walk outside my, my door and there's no great joy for me than helping my 93-year-old neighbors as they get older. And also it's a great example of how to go old gracefully. It's wonderful to watch them. So we've had some great discussions on what a good life is, right? The first part of that reality of, of helping somebody and producing an offer of help. So how do you use that, right? Okay, that's great. You, you're helping somebody really figure out what's important to them. But now what? Now what do you do with that? In the dialogue, the normal, like the conversations for them to discover what, what they care about. And some people like they'll, they'll, they'll have some ideas, but some people won't and they'll be discovering it or making it up and creating it. Inside there, there's a space for what might be missing or flawed or incomplete. That, like, they're, they, and there's nothing like they're not smart enough. They just don't have the story yet. And that's the space where you can go, here's a story. Right. And that's the real offer of help is here's a story. And it's not for like, okay, here I do it one time, but it's how to be a recurrent offer of help so that they look at you as a network of somebody to work with. And they have the concerns, they have the what they care about, 
like everybody, like there's so much going on in the world that there's no way any one person can handle all of that. And this is a space for us to be able to help them in that, in that world. So you're looking for what is missing for, from them. And to be a real offer of help is to be able to bring forth what is missing in a way that doesn't sting. Like you should have known that beforehand, but to be in a space where you go, oh, I remember when I discovered that. Yeah, that sucked. Or, no, that was really cool. Or however it was that you went through that so that you're not throwing a rock at them, but you're actually letting them, give them space to discover and to be in that space with them. And I don't want to step over that, that being with them in that dialogue is also a space for me to learn, to get help, right? It's the last part of the algorithm is to allow real contribution. And you have, like, I want to be in a space where I am creating an opportunity for me to receive help from anybody. Not like I'm just out trying to give help. I'm trying to get help as well. And which means I have to have the story. I'm open to accept it. Great. Thanks. Any stories? It sounds like I'm thinking about for myself and for others, right? There's a little bit of a timing thing here on offering help. And what, what I mean by that is, right? Understand what they care about. You see something that's missing. You can toss some lines as we call it, but can you step in too early? Or how does that look when you're working with somebody to help expose what's missing there in a way, as you said, that's dignified, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of like, mm -hmm. why didn't you see that? I can see that. The distinction that, that I hold and works, has worked the best for me is as you go through our processes, you'll, see, you'll learn about what is called a, a minus self and a plus self and a zero self. And the, the distinction is that a plus self has it all figured out. And it's kind of the place where I kind of like those humans really like to get to that point, right? They like to go do learn and get to the place they go, oh, I got this figured out, right? The problem is when you got it figured out, you're not really open to learning anymore because you've got it figured out. And then there's a space where people are going like, and, and that was pretty good. So maybe I'll listen to it, but I think I got it figured out. It's zero self. And then you've got the minus self, which is like, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm looking for help. And there may be somebody, even though I kind of got it figured out, but I think there's somebody else who may have a better idea than this because what I'm working doing is not working as good as I can. And what you're looking for is when somebody is starting to become curious, like you've offered some help and they go, could you tell me more? Where did you learn that? How does that work? Is that real? What they've shifted from being like they got it figured out, they're going like, maybe I don't have it figured out. And one of those spaces that is really powerful is to be in a space where they get really quiet. When they get really quiet, they're not at all quiet. In fact, there's so much talking in their head, there's no space for words to come out as well. And to just let them sit in that space where they're talking to themselves. And when they, when they stop, uh, turn, most of the time they ask a question. Because now they're going like, I don't know what to do with this. Then and only then are they now open to help. And, and that goes for me too. Like when I'm in a conversation with somebody and you hear me go quiet and then you hear me ask a question, I'm now being a minus self and I'm open to help and I'm curious about what it is, right? To make an offer into that moment and that time that's where the power is, right? That's where the, that's where the connections and trust 
and everything else can take place. Wonderful. How long does that take? Well, I've had it happen as, as short as a few minutes and as long as nine years. And most people don't ask about the one that takes really short. They I said, nine years? How did you wait nine years? That was a great practice for me working on being my stand, which is like our first step, right? Is I believe in the person and they're going to they're gonna move at the pace that they can move. And when they're ready to move, I'll be here. And that creates an enormous amount of peace for myself to be with them or to be with anybody because they're going to move at the pace they can move and I don't need to move any faster. Because if I do it any faster than that, kind of like throwing a rock at somebody or throwing a brick, you do it enough times and they'll take those bricks and turn it into a brick wall and then you're never going to get into it because they're, they're not even going to notice you there or, or be willing to admit they built a brick wall between you. It just goes away. Mm. So now have I screwed this one up? A lot, right? But to be in a space where I go until they're being curious not to try to connect. Any good stories on that one? Most of the really good stories are ones where I thought I had thrown rocks because they went quiet, right? Particular story, I, I shared it with a gentleman about just tossing lines to figure out like where, where he was and what he wanted to, how he wanted to take care of his life. And I was asking questions, you know, what do they want to do in retirement? Do they want to have kids? Do they want to have this? Do they want to have that? And he got really quiet and went away. And then uh, like he didn't come back. And then it was like five years later, I'm out to dinner with his wife and him. And we never had another conversation. And she, she turned to me and said, I, I remember the day, day that he came home and told me this story. And we cried for like two days because we were not taking care of ourselves by our own standards. Right? We, I could go into like having kids, not having kids, money, not money, all that, all that story, right? And she goes, but it was the best thing that's ever happened to us. Right? Now, he never came back to me. He never came back and joined, and we never went off in business and stuff. But it's those dialogue and those stories that open up a space for people. And that's my stand is to help people notice that. It would be great if we could do things together in the future. But at the same time, my stand is for people to discover that and to live the life they love. Yeah, thanks. I agree. Uh, that moment of, of almost panic when you throw that line and the person gets really quiet. For me, I was working with a very good friend of mine that wanted to start up a new school, a grade school. And I was working with her and she really cares about education, cares about leaving a legacy behind and having a school that's slightly different, like a, a charter school, right? Of one that's built on compassion. And she was talking a lot about this physical building that in order for the school to get started, she had to, you know, it was very expensive because the building was falling down and there was hundreds of thousands of dollars that had to occur before she could even get started because the building wasn't up to code and all sorts of things. And this is actually pre-COVID, pre-times of we're working so much online, but I just asked her, what's a school? Now, this is a person that has been in the education and has taught all over the world. And the first thing that came to me was, oh my God, I threw that line out. I, 
what did I do? This person's so understanding of what a school is. She's been an educator. She's been an administrator. She's taught for her whole life. But she got really quiet, and I didn't know either. And was she totally mad at me? Would she never talk to me again? And it was probably five minutes, maybe less. It certainly felt like five minutes. And she kind of came back and said, I don't know. Right? It wasn't a physical building, that's for sure. And the conversation totally shifted to what a school is and what does it mean to teach. And now, a year later, she's teaching online with students from all across Eastern Europe, Africa, India, all sorts of places. And she's come back and thanked me because she never thought about it not being a physical location. It's something different. Is it a, I, I don't know the exact, is it a philosophy? Is it something else? But it's not a physical building. So that was one for me. And I kind of noticed that moment and a moment of panic in myself if I said something wrong, which turned out later to be probably one of the, the best things I ever said to her. That's really great. Like that moment where you're sitting there and she's quiet. You have any stories you tell yourself in those moments to help you hold your center? Well, the first thing that came in is like, I just pissed her off, right? So I was like, okay, reject that one and, and move on. Or should say move on from that one is this is somebody I held in high regard, right? And I know she's probably one of the best educators out there. And so I believed in her and everything that she was going to do. And my stand for her is that she's going to be very successful and she's going to make a difference. And we're going to figure this out. Yeah, it's great. Thank you. Well, one of the things that helps me is to, Continually say this, believe in them. They believe they, they, they can get there and believe in them. Helps yeah. me helps me be much more patient with the other person. Have you ever, and I'm going to call it this, may not be the right word, gone in too early, right? There's still a plus self. At least I've made that mistake, right? You make your offer of help while there's still a plus self and taking years to potentially recover as I'm like, oh, I know, right in the early years, I can help you. Why aren't you listening? And to sort of jam somebody into that that help story. I don't know. Any any thoughts on that? You know, how to wait for that moment. So the, there is a story that I use to calm myself. I had somebody who was a close friend. I'll just say his name's James. And we really like had a lot in common with each other. Same kind of industry roughly the same age, both like focusing on our, our life and not just like a career, but life and taking care of family, all that stuff. Right. And I was, I was working through some stuff with him and I went too fast. Hmm. And, and I, I acknowledge him for the courage of what he shared with me. And he said, you know, I, I'm not sure I know who you are. Hmm. I'm not sure we should, friends anymore and like it it ended like because we were in business we would be in the same meetings at times and stuff like that and it really wasn't like i i, I had like i go okay like, like i accepted his decline like he's he doesn't want to be around me or be in that space and i got it and then i was working actually working in Germany at the time, and he had come over to Germany to, for some of the reason. 
and he, he hunted me down. We never talked about it, but you could tell there was something incomplete for him. And yeah, I'm triggered to go see if I can find him now, see where he's at. I, I didn't, I didn't like at that time, I uh, beginning of all this, I didn't really have the, like the story about how to clean up my own messes. Like it was more like, okay, guess that didn't work. Let's go on another experiment. Right. <laughs> see if we can learn from it, not do that again, but to go back and clean it up. There's a real space there. Curious, maybe in a future podcast, we can talk about what happens when you go back and, and clean that one up. Yeah. I think that's a great opportunity. Great. Anything else, Ron? Any last moments of advice or stories to help people be that real offer of help and wait for that moment to actually to, to offer it? Well, I'll offer first around the moment of, of for what to help and, and, and uh, waiting for that moment. Not everybody knows exactly what they're looking for, but they know what they're not looking for. And... Like it's okay to run some experiments and try to figure that out. Running four bad experiments and then having one really solid, amazing help. People will remember that one solid help for a long time. So don't be afraid to screw things up. And then the more fun you have, the shorter that time of waiting for somebody is. Right? And that's just a story in your head is your orientation to it. It's a lot more fun uh, and it's a lot shorter when you're going, this is like, I'm having fun doing this. This is a good time versus like, oh, there's significant pressure and, oh, this is terrible. And oh, yes or no. And all the other crap that we tell ourselves in our heads and just go, no, I've been where they're at. I know what's going on. Maybe not this time. Maybe this time. Be at peace with it. Thanks, Ron. Good learnings. And for those of you listening in, we'd love to hear your stories. So feel free. Send them on in. Check out our website and send some information in. I agree. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you all for listening today. Please take a moment to subscribe to the story in your head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time. Bye.